This is Reimagining Healthcare, a podcast about innovation in the healthcare industry. It's a show for healthcare business owners, for healthcare professionals, for industry investors, and health tech entrepreneurs. On the show, I talk to health tech and healthcare innovators to uncover how they're reimagining and building a world of seamless digital healthcare experiences and how that fits into people's lives. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos. Today, I'm speaking with Paul Wright, a physiotherapist, former owner of multiple allied healthcare clinics, author of the Amazon bestseller, How to Run a One-Minute Practice, and founder of Practiceology, a program to help health business owners enjoy their lives by working less, earning more, and having a system that focuses on what matters. Paul shares his background and observations of business ownership and the challenges within that ultimately led to authoring How to Run a One-Minute Practice and developing a system in software called the One Minute Practice Health Business Tracking Software. We explore the key principles and reasons for why a healthcare business will succeed and how the One Minute Practice software can ensure that a modern healthcare business operates efficiently and effectively all day, every day. Paul touches on the additional support systems available within his Practiceology members community and how that assists with supporting a health business owner focus on the key success factors and implementation within the culture of their business. Let's jump in. Oh, hey there, Paul. How are you doing today? Great. Great to finally lock this one in, mate. It's been a while coming. It's been a little while in planning, but it's good to have you on board. I'm looking forward to getting to know you. You're a real standout in terms of the allied health community. You've transcended from being a multi-business allied health owner to kind of figuring out a few things that were problems and or opportunities for you through that phase, I guess is how I understand it. Tell me a little bit about your backstory, Paul. I grew up in a place called Canamble, which is about six hours northwest of Sydney. So, and interesting enough, Yanni, there was no physios, chiros, osteos in my town. So what does a young kid do who likes sport? I chose to be a physical education teacher. So I ended up going and came to Newcastle University to study phys ed. But like a lot of, I think, of entrepreneurs, I think I realised pretty quick that I couldn't work for myself as a phys ed teacher. So I I then met a physio and I didn't even know what a physio was up until that time. I liked injury anatomy, physiology, so I ended up applying to Sydney Uni and went and became a physio. And I think that was where my entrepreneurial kind of interest started. I opened a practice within 12 months after graduating from physio school and then I ended up with six clinics. I got involved with Michael Gerber's work, the E-Myth, early and then tried to run them remotely, which I did for quite a long time, and then sold them because I got interested in helping health business owners do what I did, how I ran them remotely, how I was able to have a great lifestyle while still owning practices. So we created programs for owners and one of those, we delved into software and created a software program for health business owners. That's kind of the journey, if that's in a nutshell. That is very much in a nutshell. I'm going to try and unpack it. Let's talk about that time. So you're a business owner and there's a couple of things I picked up on that you were talking about there. One is obviously running you built to six locations, I think you, you stated there. And also, you sort of talked about time. That gives me the impression that you didn't have much, which would be understandable trying to grow six separate sites in business. Were they the key issues that kind of led to transcending business ownership and trying to help other business owners? Were there other problems and opportunities that you saw as you were going from one to six? And that's yeah. a lot of water under the bridge to, to do that. I think I was like most owners there, Yanni, because I had that entrepreneurial streak. I think that came about when I realised I couldn't work for myself as a teacher. 
But I was always a lifestyle fan. I always wanted to have a business that worked without me. And I liked the idea of relative passive income. But like entrepreneurs as well, Yanni, I was frustrated by ceilings, limitations. So I knew as a teacher, there was a limitation on my wage, likely. So then I started the physio practices and I had a ceiling of income with one location, so many rooms, so many therapists. There was a ceiling on that, which I didn't like. So then I became the ceiling by having multiple locations. So I then got to six locations. But then there was even a ceiling on that. So then over the time, I'm thinking, well, how can I reach a broader audience and what doesn't have a ceiling? So one of my attractions to, say, a software program, even our mentor program, was potentially there was no ceiling on it. I could have a million members of one-minute practice or a million people in our mentor program. There was no ceiling. So that was probably one of my overriding things is not being capped. I don't like the idea of being capped with income. The other thing, though, that you unpacked then, I actually wasn't that busy, Yanni, because I valued my family time and home life so much that the business's job was always to serve me and my, we talk about our practiceology clients, we do a thing called a freedom score, which is in your business at the moment, how many hours do you physically need to be there? So if I'm a physio and I'm treating 40 hours a week, I've at least got to be there 40 hours. So that's my freedom score. And my aim was always to have a freedom score of zero. So I didn't want to be anywhere, have to be anywhere at any time. So I continued to put systems in and processes so that I didn't have to be at my practice or at my business at any time. So that was kind of the rationale for it. And it was all game in the end to try and how, how much money can I make without being there? doesn't mean you're not working, but you're working when you want. It's that freedom of choice. I don't know if that makes sense, but you've been the same thing with your core plus. There's no ceiling on your member number. That's correct. It's definitely been something that's appealed to me in business. I grew up in a family business environment and that's probably very similar to uh, the type of hours that allied health businesses tend to operate in. Probably more actually. We work seven days a week and the business trading hours were 12 to 13 hours a day. If you weren't at school, you're basically on your feet doing work. So it's highly personal exertion oriented. So that taught me a really valuable lesson on how valuable time is. I had a practice on Eastern Valley Way in Chatswood in Sydney in one of my first early practices. And there's Eastern Valley Way, busy road, Yanni. And I'm there and I'd see the sun come up over the horizon from my cubicle with my window. And I'd see the sun go down. And where'd the day go? And that just happened, like most of you guys, that happened day after day. And I didn't know any different at that stage. I had this entrepreneurial idea, but I didn't know what I was going to do with it. And then, I don't know if I told you, this bus kept going past. So there's a bus. And on the side of the bus, it says, why most small businesses fail and what to do about it. It was on the side of the bus. And, and I'm not a great universe guy. Like, I'm not the most esoteric kind of... But this bus was going past repeatedly. And finally, I got back together and I wrote the number down and I rang the number. And it led me to a Michael Gerber seminar, which was the original author of the E-Myth, you know, how to run a business without you kind of model. And that changed my life because I got the idea and then it became a game to how I can replicate this, systemize that and not be there. I'm better now that the universe tells me things I kind of listen. That guy must have been sitting at that bus for hours and hours. He said, I wish I'd ring this phone number because he's supposed to ring it. I've been sent here for a reason. Ring the number righty. And finally it happened. So I'm getting better at it. There's a number of layers to that. One is that a business should work for its owners, not the other way around. Okay. Otherwise you just... I'll let to a health business owner. I get it. But if you really think about it, the way that business is structured... Just think about the concept of a legal entity. It has shareholders and it has a director and it has operating team members. And so there's an implicit communication in that structure that the owners should be separate from the operating teams or it's assumed that that's going to be the case. There's a separation there. So you'd argue that the business should be working for the owners in that context as opposed to being self-employed. 
that comes back to the reason you started your business in the first place. You're, let's say you're out on a health business owner. Why did you start it? And they say, well, because I wanted to be my own boss. Well, that's okay, but maybe your new boss is an idiot. He doesn't know what he's doing. But but now you see what happens. They're seeing 40 hours a week of patients and then they're also running the business. And they say, but my team member comes and they're expecting 60% of gross. I want their lifestyle. I want to come in and go to work and just go home with 60% not think about it. They've chosen to do the job. You've got to make sure the business's role is to serve you and you've got to put yourself at the top of that. But there's a price to it. Be aware of the price. Like I laugh with my beautiful wife, Helen. I could have made more money. I could have consulted from seven in the morning till seven at night. I could have lectured and done things international and stuff, but I didn't want to be away from home. So as a result, we had a certain amount of income and the game was to try and get as much income as possible and have a great lifestyle, but not have to be anywhere. And as a result, that's the lifestyle we created, but we created the business to do that. And I didn't compromise it. A lot of times I could have gone into work, like there was a sick therapist or there was a guy on holidays for two weeks and we had no one to fill it. No, I could have. But I didn't want to. <laughs> so you just the business runs as you want it to run and you accept you're in charge of it. You decide what it's going to do. It's a vehicle to give you more life, not the other way around. Otherwise, you've got a wrong idea. That didn't happen for you overnight. How long did it take you to build six businesses and implement a system that you could then translate into software? What sort of time period did that take you? I spent probably two years in the first one. And the first one is probably the most important one, Yanni. So those guys out there at the moment, because they'll talk about this as being your franchise prototype. That's the model. It's the one you're going to test it on. And, and I think one of the biggest mistakes in business you can make is expanding before your systems are ready. If you've got a business that has got a few problems and then you replicate it, it's going to expand those problems. So get your, use your, your business at the moment as your franchise prototype. Whether you ever decide to replicate it or franchise it is irrelevant. You're still building a business that is replicatable Anyway, so you're still putting in the systems and the processes. So a couple of years from the first one to two, another year for the second one. And then we expanded reasonably quickly because we had opportunities, locations came up. One challenge with it though, Yanni, and beware of this, and this was from Jim Collins, Good to Great. I unfortunately read the book well after I'd done this. Jim Collins talks about the issues of, of businesses and one of the problems that they have is they expand faster than their ability to fill the key seats on the bus. So they grow, but they haven't got the quality of people to grow with it. And I think we probably did that. We grew in a relatively low labour environment. So we, we needed more people. We had problems getting staff. So that was one of our limitations. But then I read the book afterwards and, oh, that's what it was. Yeah, I think that's a really important point because if you grow too quickly, some people are just obsessed with growth. If you grow too quickly, you end up without systems and it's very chaotic so you've got a lot of turnover in staff you've got customers who are churning away from you and so you're sort of running really fast but you're not really generating speed you're kind of busy but not productive it's kind of interesting you know just hearing that part of your story in that in software as a service sort of the the business model that i'm involved with we see three key stages in business there's generally a search for a product market fit so that could be the first two years that you're describing you're ironing out the business model and making sure that it was working consistently. And then beyond that, you're looking for a repeatable and scalable model, particularly around your sales, client acquisition and retention strategies within the business. And when you get those things right, then you go aggressive with growth and you start pumping the investment dollars in to expand quite fast. Does that overlap with your own experience? Do you see alignment there? Yeah, well, it certainly does. And you think about, I suppose, because our background is allied health, 
there's always two key drivers, Yanni, of any business, especially allied health, but a lot of businesses, two key drivers. But the first one is available market. So is there enough market for what you're delivering? Is there enough demand for it? And is, have you, are you solving a big enough problem? So firstly, is available market. But then especially in the industries that require hands-on work, like allied health, you've got to have available labour supply. So available market and available labour. If you've got those two things, you're in a good place. But we hear it all the time, Yanni, especially people that open like regional practices. So they go into the middle of nowhere and open a practice. Now, there might be a community that needs help. There isn't a therapist. So there's a demand. There's a valuable market. But you're going to really struggle to get a therapist to come and live in the back of nowhere to deliver that service. So your model was wrong from day one. We look at business models. Whilst Allied Health possibly frowns at someone like McDonald's, you can see their success. There's available demand. There's a demand for the product. And they can staff it with an endless supply of 14, 15-year-old kids. So available later. So it has implications for us. So looking at where you're going to open your location, what service you're going to provide. If I'm going to provide an elite pelvic floor service, for example, in allied health, are there enough of those elite therapists to provide that service? So am I pigeonholing my business and limiting my growth because of my demand for that very quality therapist? So you've got to look at your model. Unfortunately, Yanni, most people don't do that in business. They open a business, here's a mistake, because they want to. Uh, I want to open a practice in St. Leonard's. I want to. Now, I did this, but I didn't really think very deeply, is there enough demand for it? And could I staff it? I didn't really look at that in any great detail. So I made one of the classic mistakes. I fell in love with opening a practice in St. Leonard's without really researching, is there enough available demand for the service? And, is there, and can I staff it? A guy came to me once at a conference and he said, Paul, I want to open six practices in the northern beaches of Sydney. That's what I want to do. And I remember my first thought isn't a problem already because he started the thing with, I want, I want to do this. And I said to him, well, is there a demand for that? Oh, I, th- I think so. He said, I said, now how are you going to staff it? He said, oh, I'll just advertise. In the middle of one of the biggest labour shortages, he tells me he's going to advertise. Oh, okay. See, there's a guy because he wants to do something. There's a business lesson for all of us there. The market doesn't care what you want to do. The market doesn't give a rat's what you want to do. Your job is to find a hungry market and then satisfy the hungry market. And ideally, if you need labour, with an available labour supply. Otherwise, your business model was flawed from day one. I probably wish I'd known that when I started my first business. But I think a lot of business owners have those types of points where you sort of reflect back and go, ah, if only I knew that. Because it saves you time, just bringing it back to one of the most valuable things that we all possess. It is our time and how we use it. And so... If you need to figure something out by yourself, that's going to take you a long time in business. Whereas if yeah. you surround yourself with experts, um, with the right people who've been there and done that and have the systems, then you save that time and well, you, you get, you get this, there faster. What's the adage? That successful people spend money to save time. That's what successful yep. people do. What, yep. Why do you think someone acquires a business? They buy a business for speed. They buy it because I don't have to spend 10 years building this. I'll just buy it and I'm, I'm already there. I think... We just have to understand the fundamentals of business and especially in allied health, available market, available labour, they're, they're the key drivers. And are you solving a desperate enough problem? You think about, I wanted to be a physio. I said, I want to be a physio. But I didn't really think, Yanni, is that a profession where there's going to be demand? Am I going to be in demand? I laugh with my guys because I say to them, now you'll love this. They say, I think if I could have my time again, what would I be? If I could have my time over, as a, say I was going to be a health professional, what would I be? 
And I laugh with the guys in practiceology. I say, I would rather be a podiatrist or an optometrist. So they're the two. I should have been a podiatrist, not optometrist. Now, I'm not a massive fan of feet, so podiatry probably wasn't going to be suited. But what I like, you can see that the similarity, what I liked about these two models, or those two professions, they've got a product arm. I can do a consult, but I can then sell an $800 orthotic, or I can do an optometry consult and sell an $800 pair of glasses. I've got a product range attached to my profession. So all of a sudden, my margins change, my numbers change. And we see it all the time with, with hands-on professionals, physio, osteo, you know, chiro. They're trading time for dollars. It's the consult. How long's the consult? How many can I get through in a day? It's without the margin. So I'm not telling you go and become an optometrist or podiatrist, but look at a, or at least put a product range into your business that gives you the chance to change your margins because consult for time for dollars, that's a tough gig. I think in the long run, trading time for dollars is, it's a pathway to pain. You know, it's what it, it <laughs> really is. I mean, because we all get older. And so the gold medal line of aging is relentless and it keeps chasing you. So at some point in time, you've got to figure out how to disassociate your income earning yeah. from and it, and it's, and your it, personal exertion. It goes, and it goes into what you value. I've got a group of guys, we go away every year. So it was a group of mates for 20 years, we go away for a few days every year. And I remember one year, one of my mates, he said, oh, I can't come this year, Roddy. He's a high-profile sports physician, a really sharp guy. He said, I've got, to, I've got to do a list of patients for something. I said, don't be so ridiculous. I said, what are you going to remember? He said, what? I said, well, when we're 60, 70, 80 years old and we're talking about, are you going to remember the list of patients you saw or are you going to remember seeing my cousin Wayne go over the handlebars of his quad bike into the river? Because <laughs> that's what happened. It's a quad bike. So, and he said, oh, I get it. And of course, we saw Wayne go over the handlebars of the river. And what are you going to remember? There's a cost to all this. And you can think, well, I can make two grand doing a consult list or I can go and see my daughter's dancing recital. Just be smart. I think it's inevitable. <laughs> you, you hit a point in your life where that really makes sense. Maybe it's not in your early 20s, but I think at some point, especially as you partner up and potentially kids are involved and the human experience takes on a whole new dimension, definitely makes sense. So I think what we've established here is that obviously there's uh, uses of your time which are preferable yeah. than doing consults all day, every day for you. And then the other side of it is that there's an element of allied health that's highly personal exertion oriented. So that means it's a big commitment in time. And to, I guess, paraphrase a couple of the key things, key insights through your experience and your learnings there, it's not enough just to want to own a business. You have to sort of think about where the demand is and whether you can actually service that demand in a profitable way. So that might be a good segue then into kind of talking in terms of a system that you then developed that you ultimately turned into a software system. You really emphasise the commitment to almost a zero time input into the business. In fact, it doesn't get much closer to zero than the one minute practice, <laughs> uh, which uh, you've written a book about. How do you run a one minute practice then? The whole idea of it, Yanni, when I created the book, when I thought about it, when I sat down with, I was working with a really good marketing coach at that time, and he said, what's the worst thing you can imagine? I said, well, it's a business that you're at all the time. You're 24 hours a day, you're working at it, and that's the worst possible thing. Because often a good marketing thing is to work out the exact, the worst, and then what's the exact opposite of that? So we then came up with the one-minute practice. And how to run a one-minute practice, it then came about, what do you need to run a one-minute practice? And what you need is a way to make sure that all the systems are being done in your business, whether you're there or not. And that was kind of the guts of it. And we started it, there's different parts to one minute practice, but the, one of the key components that we started with was a simple Excel spreadsheet. I'm a systems guy yarning, so I wanted it all to be systemized. And I thought when someone arrives at the practice, what are the steps that that person has to go through? I want to make sure we've got their referral source. So I want to make sure, did they sign their new patient agreement? 
yes or no? Did they get a welcome phone call? Like all this, the steps. And one of the key steps that we wanted to put in there was the action plan. So if you came and saw us at our physio practice, the therapist would have to do a written plan for you, Yanni. So there'd be a written sheet of paper and they'd say, and what you've got, what you're going to do. And they would say at the bottom, to get you back to your running event, Yanni, in three weeks' time, you need to see me twice a week for the next three weeks. And we'd make sure that number was written. So twice a week for three weeks. So that gives, on that sheet of paper, Yanni, I've then got a number and the number was six, which means I've seen you as a therapist. I think you need six consults in this first stage. So I wanted that number on this spreadsheet. And then the next number to it was they'd take that out to the front counter. Out of those six consults, the admin team books as many as possible, hopefully six. So, and what this kind of dawned on me as I went through this process, I could look at that spreadsheet from anywhere in the world. And I could look at it from Newcastle because I had five clinics in Sydney and I wasn't there. I could get that spreadsheet and I could see the new patient. And I'd say, well, they saw Brian. Yeah, they got the plan. The plan, they reckon it's six consults. Well done, Brian. But the person only booked one consult. Hang on, what happened? Was, that, was the therapist not good? Was the admin bad? Like, why wasn't it a 6-6? Six, six? And there might have been some other things, a follow-up phone call, a referral thank you call to the referrer, you know, that's so processes. So this was the original spreadsheet that started One Minute Practice. We called it a new patient register. But the problem then, Yanni, as you know, we then had a spreadsheet. And I'd say to the guys, can you send me the spreadsheet? This was before Google Docs and other things. And that was kind of the start of One Minute Practice. What are the spreadsheets that I want access to that I can then look, I can log in, and I can see that new patient register, did all those things happen? And I can do that in one minute. And I do it now, Yanni. We've got clients in Practiceology, our mentor program. We, the mentor and myself, we log into the one minute practice software. We look at the new patient register. And within a minute, we can see, are the team members recommending well? Are they block booking well? So that was kind of the start of it. And then we added color coding because the red things will stand out if I've recommended six and the person only books one that'll go red so hang on that's why is that red i want a green new patient register so that was kind of the start of it and then it kind of expanded we added profit and loss system to it we added a marketing plan we added checklists we added lead trackers so we added different components to it but it started with the idea of how can i oversee my practice if i'm not there in less than a minute and we can do it now with our clients we log into the software and every month we'll do the PL analysis yep that's how you run a one-minute practice. Systems, processes, and accountability. There's one-minute practice. And you from Core Plus thinking, well, we do some of that. And people say to me all the time, I've got a practice management software system. I said, but it's not a practice management software system. I want to check, are you doing the process? Are you doing, I didn't want to muck around with the appointment diary. I didn't want to muck around with clinical notes. I didn't want any of that invoicing. That's not what this is about. This is about the steps and processes inside the business and are they being followed? My software doesn't show me that. I was going to ask that question as well. I kind of have my own answer anyway, just given that you've already sort of gotten ahead of that. I think the key difference is that there's a lot of different user types or personas in terms of roles and responsibilities within a business. And so when you think about a practice management software, it has to generally cater for a lot of different types of employees. There's obviously healthcare professionals, but there's also receptionists, admins, bookkeepers. These types of different roles tend to be within the purview of most clinical systems. But what you're describing is you're kind of building a system that's designed for the user type or the persona of a business owner or a manager of the business. But I think what you're describing there is that the idea of the one-minute practice is that you want to be able to look at something and immediately identify what needs management, if anything at all. So if everything's green light, then carry on with the day. 
let's get the quad yeah. bike out. Let's do what we need to do, hang out with the family, do the other things. But as soon as we see a red or a number of reds, we yeah. then go into, what did you call it? Was that the accountability side of the, the well, emphasis you just put on the program? Well, everything's accountability and you're measuring it. This happened in our business. If I want to remove myself from my practice, I've got to have systems in place that are not negotiable. The best example is probably the action plan. It's a sheet of paper. It's the report of findings that chiropractors have been using for years. But I took that a bit further and I want that's then become a tool that I can see, is this therapist recommending adequately? And if I look at their new patient register and it's 1-1, one, one, their consults and plan is 1 and their future bookings is 1. If that's a 1-1, one, one, yet another practitioner is typically 6-6. Six, six. I know there's a difference between those guys. But if I'm not there, Yanni, if I'm not in the practice, I mightn't be able to see that. I might not be able to see that the new therapist, Brian, is a one consult wonder who doesn't rebook well. And the only way I'll see it, if I'm not there and hear this conversation, the only way I'll see it is if I look at his diary in a week or two's time and it's empty. Hang on, this kid just got 20 new patients the last two weeks. Why is his diary empty? Because he's a one-one booker or he's a one-zero booker or... He's a zero-zero booker who says, oh, you don't need to come back, do a few exercises and give us a call in a month. I can't know that unless I've got a, something to pick it up and see it. So you're right, it's a compliance tool. It's a way of comparing team members. It's making sure that this process is followed and I've got to make sure there's a way that I can check that it's done. And Gerber said it right, your job as a business owner is to remove discretion at the operating level of your business remove discretion at the operating level of your business. Now, many, if I put this action plan model in or any step, let's say I want everyone to ring up every new patient within 24 hours and make sure they're okay. Like that's the process. But if I don't have a way to measure that it's done, some will do it, some won't do it. And then I'll ask the owner, how's that follow-up phone call system going? Well, I think they're doing it. I told them a month ago to do it. I'm pretty sure they're doing it. If you haven't got a way to record it and measure it, and say, hey, what's happened with this? You can't control your business. It's going to be a mess. And I said to my guys, it was funny, when I started this idea, I said, guys, everyone gets a new patient action plan. Every new patient. No one doesn't. Actually, no. And then I said, oh, no, there's one time. There's only one time where someone doesn't get an action plan. When is it? They're in this team meeting. Oh, when they've got to go to the surgeon. No, because your plan is needs to go to the surgeon. They've still got a plan to go to the surgeon. Well, I don't know. Okay, well, the only time I'll allow it is if the patient dies during the consultation. So if the patient keels over during the and drops dead in the floor, I'll let you off it, but no other time. Now, they laughed. It got a chuckle at the group. But then I looked at the new patient register the next few days, and I would look at it, and I'd see a new patient come in, action plan, no, in big red N, no. Uh Uh-huh. So I'd contact the therapist. Gee, sad news about Mrs. Jones yesterday. (laughs) What do you mean, Righty? Well, they obviously died during the consultation because as far as I can see, they didn't get an action plan. That's just terrible. Ah, now there was a chuckle, but if I see that tomorrow, hey, did something with yesterday's conversation not resonate? Was there an issue with that? And then I've got a problem and I'll solve that problem. But I'm not going to be a month down the track still complaining that this guy's not doing his plans. He's gone. It makes a lot of sense. And I think that is a, either an evolution or a difficulty for a lot of business owners where they struggled to hold people accountable. And I suppose if you can use, if you've got that kind of people magic, so to speak, where you can say it in that way and where <laughs> the, person, the person is basically realising very quickly that uh, this is going to become a performance management issue if I don't address it pretty quickly. Think about it in most businesses. Like 
I had the name badge test was in my business because everyone wore a name badge. It's not negotiable. You've got to have a name badge on. And I said to them, guys, just say no. If ever you catch me without my name badge on, I'll give you all 20 bucks. If ever you catch me without it. And they got a chuckle. They're all trying to find me without my name badge. And of course, I never paid them. I was too tight for that. But then I'd come into the practice and a guy wouldn't have his name badge on. And I'd notice because I was noticing this. And as I left it the other day, I saw he had his name badge on again. And because he's one of the practice managers. And I, as, I, as I left, I said, hey, you go, well done today, mate. Hey, thanks for putting the name badge on too. Really appreciate it. And I walked out. Now, there was a lesson in it for him. We laughed about it, but he knew that I knew. And I wanted him to know that I knew that he didn't have it on. It's no point having a process in place if you're not going to make them accountable for it or pick them up on it. And I think that's the problem with some owners, Yanni. They want to be liked rather than being respected. Do you want to be liked? And that's that's the dilemma of ownership of any business. Do you want to be liked or do you want to be respected? Now, I know I was never always liked. I'm up and about the name badges. I'm up and about the action plans, whatever. But I'm also in control of their wages. I'm in control of their holidays. I'm I'm in control of everything. So how am I always going to be liked? That's just ridiculous. But I'm always going to be respected. They're going to respect my decision to have an action plan and it's not negotiable. And if you don't do it, you don't work here. Pretty simple. They've got to respect my choices as the owner of the business. You've got to make your choice. You're not going to always be popular, but just accept it. It's definitely a different mindset, especially if you've been a clinician within a practice and then all of a sudden decided to have a crack at business ownership and then you're on the other side of the fence. You realise pretty quickly. I'm chronically unemployable for that reason. Most entrepreneurs (laughs) are chronically unemployable. I got sacked from so many jobs because I'd say, this is how you do it. Well, that's just stupid. Why would you do it that way? This is how you should be doing it. And I I had to get out, so I was unemployable. I remember this great piece of wisdom uh, I learned early on, which is the hardest problems in business have hair on them. And I guess it just comes down to... It's that human beings have minds of their own. And so if you don't have a system, then they'll find a way to work. It just may not be the most efficient and effective way from the business standpoint. And so you've got to have the system. So, And then above that, you need the mindset and the commitment to holding people accountable. Paul is what I'm getting from you. But you do more than that. Like you've written the book, How to Run the One Minute Practice. It's been an Amazon bestseller. You've built a quite a large community and following. You've talked about this in a variety of different countries and continents. You've been very successful as an educator and a coach. Does somebody just buy the book and they just have instant success? Do they need to do more? Do they need to have support just like a patient might need support to get the behavioural change and to get the outcome they're looking for in terms of healthcare? How important is the other stuff that you do around coaching, mentoring and some of the educational content that you produce? The book is basically a summary of the software. So the book is the different parts of the software and how it worked and explains it. You can read the book and you can go, okay, I'll do that and you can do it. The challenge I find with most people is implementation or anything specific related to their practice, but also, as you point out, the mental challenges that come on. I can say to guys, just start an action plan and just, it's not negotiable and that's what you should be doing. But then for the owner to then do it, follow up with it, implement it and and not get derailed by the whinging team member or the 20-year veteran front desk person that doesn't want to do it that way, there's all these challenges that come in. So there's a lot of things trying to derail you and that's with any change they're going. So if you make any change, people are resistant to change in most things. So one of my clients say once in practiceology, they said their team members said to him, the business was much more calm before you got involved with that Paul Wright character. And they're right because the business was calm, but it wasn't efficient. It wasn't profitable. And the owner was there all the time. They were all very comfortable. So there's always going to be issues when you make change and you need support when you do that. 
put the prices up, to put action plans in, to put the systems in, to recruit well. There's a lot of personal help. So that's kind of where we took one-minute practice and we took our examples and we made it the Practiceology Mentor Program for that reason. So we've now got a community of people that we get in, we share war stories and you, and you talk about, here's the resource I've got for this and here's, we've tried this before. Because otherwise it is slow to do it on your own. Slow. I think that's invaluable. I think it's absolutely crucial to surround yourself with people who are better than you in terms of experience and uh, performance. I go back, I grew up playing tennis and cricket as a kid. Yep. I hated playing against people that I could smash, you know, really easily. I wanted to lose to people because I was learning. When I was playing against better players, as frustrating as it was, I was analysing them and I was uh, figuring out what it was that they had over me as a performance differentiator. And it didn't take long before I could turn it around and actually be very competitive against them or even beat them. So for me, that taught me a really important lesson that if you live in your own headspace, there's not a lot of growth. You've got to infuse, you've got to network, you've got to synergize, you've got to surround yourself with people who actually love talking about your business. So I just spoke to a lady this morning, like New Zealand... She's very successful, but she's doing 60 plus hours in a practice and she's getting team members on and, and they want 60% of gross. But she's on her own. So, but I've got to pay that to get them. No, you don't. We've got a lot of owners that have got that wage to revenue down to 30, 40%. Oh, but because she's in her own bubble, she doesn't, she doesn't see what's possible. And you just need the support of other people. Well, we did it. You know, we started at 70% of gross, and, but now we're doing this. But on your own, it's tough because what you see depends on where you stand. And if that's all she can see, You've just got to just surround yourself with other people. They say if you're the smartest person in the room, you're in the wrong room. I always try and be the dumbest person in any room I can get into. So you've got the community building. There's the software for implementing the systems, which you've got some great resources online, which we'll put some links in the show notes there as well. And I really like the way you actually use web and video assets and tools in order to get your key points across. I think a lot of health business owners would find that really easy to consume as a starting point and also immediately get why it's valuable as well. I was curious whether you find some of the people in the community, the mentees, the people that you're coaching and working with, have they ever sort of looked at your system and thought, could we do something like this for our patients where if you kind of move it one step further in the value chain, if you're helping business owners use innovative tools such as video and member portals and software to set up all your business processes and systems to make sure that they're being adhered to and you're getting that cultural or behavioural change within the practice, have they ever thought about potentially replicating the framework? Now, obviously, the content would need to change, but the framework could become part of a modern health practice. Do you encounter that discussion at all? Do people sort of bring that up? Only in the context of packages. So let's say you're doing a certain package of care and it's so many sessions. It's a, so it's a shockwave program once a week over four weeks. So that's a system and a process. And did they attend the first, the second, the third, the fourth? So compliance issues. I don't see why it couldn't be done. We packaged our treatments as much as we could at our businesses. So we produced a gym-based rehab program that was over 12 weeks. The insurance companies bought the package. So we tried to package the treatments we did it with a better back program. Three sessions a week over four weeks was a better back program because that came from my frustration, Yanni, of let's say a patient came into one of our practices and the therapist would say, we need to see you once a week for four weeks. Another guy will say twice a week for four weeks. Another guy will say three times a week. Someone will say none at all, go and do your exercise. Now, removing discretion, I, anyone who came with a back problem, they go on the better back program, which is three times a week for four weeks. So I suppose packaging your treatment as a system and then having that step-by-step checklist. If you're interested in that sort of stuff, I know Ted Jednick and the guys at Foot Mobilisation Therapy did exactly that with their podiatry or their foot treatment, so packaging your services. 
So that could certainly follow into what we're talking about of systems and processes and checklists. If you have a treatment that you're delivering consistently, then certainly package it, name it something, because people will buy a package much more than they buy an individual consult. We do know that. That's kind of where you're going. You can package anything, and that's we package the patient experience, so certainly package the therapy experience. There's no reason why you shouldn't do exactly the same thing. Yeah, it's partly what I was kind of thinking about, but I was also thinking about that idea of the book, the member portal, the coaching to support a person in taking them from where they are to some other goal that they're looking for. And just bearing in mind that a patient experience is not confined to a one-off encounter. It's Health is one of these things that we're optimal, then we're not. We're optimal, then we're not. We, it sort of fluctuates throughout the course of our lives and arguably gets worse as we get on. I think in those ways, I constantly kind of do these thought experiments in my mind around the patient experience and how digital tools and digital health thinking can actually bring scale into healthcare. So to your point and aspiration around the time saving. Well, you can solve this one for me. I'll tell you the big frustration <laughs> I've got. You're the tech guy, so come up with this one. Health, typically physios, osteos, they're consistently giving their patients the home exercise program. They send them off with their exercises. And I've got to the point where I think it's pointless. I say to my guys, don't send them off with the exercises. Get them to come back and do it with them because they're either not doing them, they're doing them wrong. Increase the consult number because I think the number of people who go away with the exercise program and they come back to the therapy session and the first thing the therapist says, how'd you go with your exercises? And the therapist and the patient probably hasn't done them or they've done them wrong or they tell some lies and then they feel bad. The initial reaction is bad. So I think they're better off not giving them, better off not asking them or they give them and say, if you do it, great. If you don't do them, that's okay as well but I'll see you in two days and we'll do them in here so you're doing them right. That's why personal training worked, Yanni. I remember when personal training came to Australia back in the 80s. I was in the fitness industry heavily at that time and I remember saying, well, this isn't going to work. Who in goodness name will want to pay someone to stand there and count your reps for them? That's not going to work. I was adamant. And of course, it went ballistic. Couldn't work out because I'm a motivated person. I don't need a personal trainer. I'll go on my own. But not everyone's me. I think a lot of professionals are cutting off their income stream a lot by sending people off to do exercises rather than getting them in and supervising them and doing it. And if anything they do on the outside is a bonus. So if you can solve that one for me with your tech, mate, knock yourself out. I was kind of just personally relating to my daughter at the moment is learning gymnastics. She's five and a half. Oh, I've, I've been there. Don't do it, Yanni. Don't do it. I, my, <laughs> no, what I was going to say daughter, is that she just no, wants me to no. watch her do it. That's quality time now. And No, no, but gymnastics, my, I, we got stuck at gymnastics carnival for 15 years, Yanni. It's, <laughs> it's, it'll take over your life. Don't do it. No, no, no. As long as she's happy, I'll be happy. But what I'm observing is that she's more likely to practice at home when I'm watching her than she is just to do it on her own. So for her to sort of go off into a room and practice some of her routines, no. Nah unlikely but if she says dad come and watch me do this and i just stand there and watch her she'll do it and she doesn't tire and i'm just there for hours you know but i wonder if that's just part of human nature that there's a large proportion of the community that just need to be spotted they need somebody there to just observe nurture encourage just feel supported through that process because they're not going to do it on their own marketing people will say people are walking around with your umbilical cord in their hand trying to find somewhere to plug it in and if you can plug it into the community of practiceology or community or core plus, or you plug it into that community of the gym or river or the, the gymnastics, they want to be part of something. That's the human connection. Makes so a lot of sense. If you create that in your business, that's what it's about. Just one last question then, probably a two-part question. What do you think the big issues are for healthcare business owners at the moment and going forward? 
And do you see the business of healthcare just being the same in five to 10 years' time? Or what are you seeing as what a modern healthcare practice will look like in five to 10 years' time? If you've already worked out you've got an available market, if you know in your area there's enough people needing your service, then your success will be determined by your ability to attract and keep the right labour. And the biggest mistake I think owners are making at the moment is they're, they're putting ads and they're wondering why they're not getting a response, but that's all they're doing. We talked in that recruitment briefing about being an active recruiter, like doing lots and lots of things to get people interested in coming to work for you and then keeping that funnel full, the same as we do with our clients. So the biggest challenge is going to be recruitment. And is there a solution for it? Yes, you've got to be a very active recruiter. You've got to be doing lots of things. You can't just place an ad and expect to get lots of applicants. So be very active in your recruitment. The big changes, what will change? Someone asked me this actually in another podcast. I did. They said, what's the biggest change you'll see? What will business be like after COVID was the question. I said, well, in most cases, it'll be exactly the same because the owners will go back to doing how they were doing it before. They got to kick up the bum when COVID hit and they had to get their systems in place and marketing and communicate with their database. But in most cases, the owner will get busy They'll go back seeing more and more patients and the practice will just float along and it'll go back to how it was before. So I don't know if that was answered your question, but that's recruitment is the big issue and being sucked back into you doing all the work is the big challenge for owners. And I fought it, as I said, I fought it hard. I was very aware that it was constantly sucking me back in and I had to be very diligent not to get sucked in. And I've got a thing on my wall over here just over monitor. What's the most important thing that only I can do right now? And if you spend your life on that, what's the most important thing you can do right now? In your case, it's watching your daughter gymnastics. It's the most important thing you can do. And my wife comes in and she wrote on it once, give me a kiss and cuddle. And she's right. <laughs> That's the most important thing that I can do right now. Yeah. You'll be surprised how many things aren't someone else can do it. Should I be doing this? No. Should I be doing this? No. Get rid of those things. I washed towels for years, yarn in our practice. I was the towel washer. I got to the point where I didn't see patients because I was way too important for that. <laughs> but I was still driving around to the practices, picking up all the towels and putting them into the thing and taking them home, washing them. It was ridiculous. So I had a few problems myself, but maybe time it's, is just... It's all part of it. And I think the listeners will get a sense of that wisdom and experience coming through, Paul. And I really appreciate uh, your time. So active recruiting, how to run a one-minute practice and a host of other modulated coaching and educational support that you as the physio professor can support allied health business owners with we'll make sure that we provide links and references because if you want it quick and easy, get the book. If you have trouble implementing, then engage with Paul and the team to get the support needed. Just like my daughter likes me to watch her gymnastics as a business the owner. Place, the easiest place to go, just go to mypracticology.com. There's a two-minute quiz there. You can do the two-minute quiz to see how your business is going. But you can also download a PDF download of the book. It's not going to take you six months to read it. How ironic to have a how to run a one-minute practice book that'll take you six months to read. <laughs> I, I just want a simple read. It's a lot of graphics and it just goes through the systems we put into one-minute practice. You can get a PDF download, go through it. And if you want to reach out and do anything more, you can get a free chat with me, find out if you're suitable for practiceology or connect with me on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn. But mypracticeology.com, just start there and get the book and have a read. And we're doing webinars. We're doing things all the time, as Yanni knows. So... Get involved, guys, because you just need to get immersed in the environment of other people that have been there and done it. That's fantastic. Thanks, Paul. Really appreciate your time today. Absolute pleasure, mate. Fun, as always. As always, as always. Thanks for listening. 
This podcast is produced in collaboration with Health Tech X, where we are working toward a world of integrated digital health empowerment for all people. If you'd like more info on how to get involved, head over to the website, healthtechx.com.au. Or if you have any feedback about the show, you can reach out to me directly on LinkedIn, Instagram, or email by following the links in this episode's show notes. And finally, don't forget to subscribe to Reimagining Healthcare in your podcast app. And if you like what you heard, leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. I'm your host, Yanni Sopanos, and I'll speak to you in our next episode.